This hearing will come to order and let me welcome all of you to the uh, hearing for the, this hearing uh, for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on, uh, Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific and International Cybersecurity Policy in the 115th Congress. Uh, this hearing is the fifth hearing in a series of hearings specifically dedicated to building out various aspects of U.S. policy challenges and opportunities in Asia. From security threats to economic engagement to democracy and human rights to U.S.-China relations. Today we will hear the administration's view on what constitutes a free and open Indo-Pacific and what we must do to achieve this goal. This hearing is the culmination of the intense work between this subcommittee, policy experts, U.S. businesses, civil society advocates, and the administration to define U.S. national interests toward this critically important region of the world. The result of these hearings and conversations is the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA, legislation which we introduced with Ranking Member Markey and Senators Rubio and Cardin two weeks ago. This legislation is intended to serve as a policy framework to enhance U.S. leadership in the Indo-Pacific region and to demonstrate our shared commitment to a rules-based international order. We began this series of hearings nearly 15 months ago. At our first hearing on March 29th, in 2017, we focused on the growing security challenges in the region, including North Korea, the South China Sea, and terrorism in Southeast Asia. We agreed at that hearing that we must strengthen U.S. defense posture and increase security engagement with our allies in the region. Later that year in May, we focused on the importance of U.S. economic leadership in Asia. We agreed at that hearing that while the administration and Congress might differ on global trade strategy, we cannot ignore the fundamental fact that it, that it is Asia that will be critical for the U.S. economy to grow and for the American people to prosper through trade opportunities. At our third hearing, we focused on projecting U.S. values in the region, including the promotion of democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. We agreed that the active promotion of these fundamental values only reinforces American leadership in Asia and reflects our core beliefs as a nation that human rights are universal rights without exception. In November of last year, our fourth hearing considered the U.S. relationship with the People's Republic of China, the region's rising power, and our near-peer strategic competitor. We agreed that, as once hoped, China's rise will be less than peaceful. As President Xi Jinping consolidates power domestically, it is clear that China also increasingly views its increasing economic and military power in the region as a zero-sum game with the United States. So now that this legislation has finally been introduced, I hope today our distinguished administration guests can shed light on how we can shape a multi-generational, comprehensive U.S. policy toward the Indo-Pacific region, which preserves and strengthens the rules-based international order, but also avoids armed conflict with Beijing. Economically benefits the United States and sets high standards, but also protects Americans from unfair trade practices. Reflects our nation's longstanding dedication to fundamental human freedoms, but also provides long-term tools and mechanisms to advance these goals as part of a multifaceted policy that includes engagement with regimes that may not necessarily share these same values. It's a tough challenge, a tough challenge indeed, but I believe it can be achieved when the administration and Congress speak with one voice, and that is what I hope can happen at today's hearing. And now I'll turn it over to a ranking member who I've enjoyed working with over the past uh, Congress as his um, position on this committee and obviously on the legislation and look forward to this hearing with him and more work together. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. And thank you for convening this incredibly timely and important hearing. And I want to thank our administration witnesses for being here as well <clears throat> and for their dedication to promoting U.S. interests throughout Asia. Out of the ashes of World War II, the United States and its allies set out to create a set of rules, norms, and structures around the world that would not only promote U.S. interests but also benefit others as well. These systems built out of the devastation of a world war 
have been bastions of American values and influence throughout the world. They have helped countries flourish and prosper, and in no place that has been more evident and important to U.S. national security interests than in Asia. Whether we call it Asia or the Indo-Pacific, it is clear <clears throat> that a growing network of countries from the Indian Ocean through the Pacific yearn to participate in a regional system, an American system, that keeps them secure and allows them to prosper. A system that reduces the likelihood of devastating major power conflict while helping others develop and thrive. One that upholds respect for national sovereignty and freedom from coercion. This system's ability to overcome the unique characteristics of the Indo-Pacific have proved its staying power. Though American development programs and institutions like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, uh, the United States helped unleash unprecedented economic growth and stabilize a fragile region. We have promoted democracy, human rights, and the rule of law, core values for all people. All the while, American security alliances have deterred threats and helped establish a stable balance of power. This arrangement continues to facilitate our ability to safely address the pressing security challenges in the region. But make no mistake, challenges abound. Prominent immediate ones like North Korea's nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles, longer term more nuanced ones like the Chinese government's strategic campaign to weaken the rule-based order, and with challenge comes opportunity. The opportunity to strengthen alliances from Japan to South Korea to Australia, Thailand, and the Philippines. To tackle issues from terrorism to climate change with longtime friends in Southeast Asia. To empower American diplomats to help solve vexing and longstanding foreign policy and security problems. To promote the health and well-being of countless individuals across the most heavily populated region of the planet. To empower people to seek freedom and economic opportunity, and the opportunity to show the region that the United States is no fair weather friend. That we are devoted to the Indo-Pacific because we Democrats and Republicans alike recognize that the region is more peaceful when we truly make it a priority. We are at a unique moment in history. One where we need to communicate to the region, to allies and adversaries alike, that the United States is invested literally and figuratively in Asia. That is why Senator Gardner and I introduced the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA. This legislation makes clear that uh, it is an important issue, that there are key tenets that the U.S. regional policy uh, must include promoting the rules-based order, whether through trade practices or the freedom of navigation, peacefully denuclearizing North Korea through diplomacy and economic pressure, prioritizing reasonable and effective nuclear nonproliferation policies, and defending human rights and the respect for democratic values. Our hope and our intent was and remains to ensure that the region stays at the forefront of people's minds, and in a time when allies and partners in the region may be unsure where the United States stands, it is imperative that we provide reassurance. The region should hear Congress and the executive branch expressing a shared recognition over the challenges and opportunities, and over the principles by which we intend to pursue our interests 
and promote our values. There is no place in the modern world for powerful countries coercing smaller neighbors through threat of force. No room for dictators to discriminate against, falsely imprison, torture, or kill their own citizens. No room for proliferation of the most dangerous weapons on earth. And no room for the old ways of might makes right. But there should be every chance for creative, forward-looking solutions for preserving the independence and freedom of action for those living under oppression and for forging stronger partnerships with like-minded countries towards common goals. But the system is increasingly under challenge. So we must speak clearly about U.S. objectives in the region, and we must lay out the pathways that will help us reach those goals. And we must fully fund those activities because a strategy with insufficient resources is no strategy at all. That is why our bill would authorize $1.5 billion annually to address wide-ranging challenges we face in Asia, because we must ensure that we protect both U.S. economic and security interests, as well as the broader international system that has helped provide peace and stability throughout the Indo-Pacific and beyond. The United States cannot afford to cede leadership in such a critical region. Doing so will only lead to a resurgence of the behaviors we have for so long fought against. I look forward, Mr. Chairman, to exploring these issues with this fantastic panel that you have brought uh, to the committee uh, today, and I yield back to you. Thank you, Senator Markey. Our, our first witness will be the State Department witness uh, before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Mr. Alex Wong, who returns to the State Department, uh, now serving as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State at the Bureau of East Asia and East Asia and Pacific Affairs. Prior to his appointment, he was the Foreign Policy Advisor to our colleague, General Counsel as well, to Senator Tom Cotton. Uh, he was the Senator's Chief Advisor on all issues related to national security, international relations, and law enforcement. Welcome, welcome Mr. Wong, and uh, thank you very much for uh, your service, and we'll begin with your testimony. Thank you, Senator. Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member Markey, members of the subcommittee, thank you for this opportunity to appear today before the subcommittee. It's an honor to testify on the Asian Reinsurance Initiative Act, on the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy, and our nation's continued leadership in the region. And it's also an honor to be doing so alongside my friend and colleague, Randy Shriver. The Indo-Pacific region is of chief importance to the United States. The Indo-Pacific includes half of the world's population, and by the middle of the century, will likely constitute half of the world's GDP. 50% of global trade passes through the Indo-Pacific sea routes. Annually, the United States conducts 1.4 trillion in two-way trade with the region, and is the source of over 850 billion in foreign direct investment annually, making the United States the region's largest trading partner and largest investor. The region is home to the world's three largest democracies and some of its most inspirational democratic miracles and many of its fastest growing economies. In all of these ways, the region implicates vital U.S. interests. And to defend those interests, we've long exercised leadership in the Indo-Pacific. But as the region grows in population and economic weight, U.S. strategy must adapt to ensure that the Indo-Pacific is increasingly a place of peace, stability, and growing prosperity, and not a region of disorder, conflict, and predatory economics. The ARIA legislation states, without strong leadership from the United States, the international system, fundamentally rooted in the rule of law, may wither 
to the detriment of United States regional and global interests. While the administration is still reviewing the entirety of the legislation, we agree with that assessment. That is why the administration is pursuing a strategy grounded in U.S. leadership that advances a free and open Indo-Pacific. President Trump introduced the strategic concept of the free and open Indo-Pacific during his historic trip to the region in November, which was the longest trip by a president to the region in a generation. We are now formulating the implementation of this strategy, and the formulation process is a government-wide endeavor that includes the Department of State, the Department of Defense, and every other agency that has a role in the Indo-Pacific. Our objective is to align U.S. policies and programs towards strengthening the free and open order that the United States has fostered in the region for over 70 years. Now, the modifiers we've chosen to describe the strategy, free and open, were chosen with care because they embody the principles that we seek to embed in the region. The term free means first, on the international plane, that we want the nations of the Indo-Pacific to be free from coercion, from outside powers. Nations should be able to pursue their own paths in a sovereign manner, free, free from the weight of spheres of influence. Second, free means at the national level, we want the societies of the Indo-Pacific nations to become progressively more free, free in terms of good governance, in terms of fundamental freedoms, and in terms of transparency and anti-corruption. The term open, first and foremost, means open sea lines of communication and open airways. These open sea lines of communication, particularly those in the South China Sea, are the lifeblood of the region. Secondly, we mean more open connectivity in the form of quality, best value, energy, transport, and digital infrastructure that's driven by private capital investment. Third, we mean more open investment environments in free, fair, and reciprocal trade. A better investment environment and an equal and open playing field for trade benefit U.S. workers, benefit U.S. businesses, but they also benefit indigenous innovators and indigenous entrepreneurs who will be empowered to drive economic growth in their home countries. Embedding these free and open principles will require efforts across the spectrum of our capabilities, our diplomatic initiatives, governance capacity building, economic cooperation and commercial advocacy, and military cooperation. But we are not starting from a standing start. The United States has long-standing programs that support the free and open order. And we've initiated new efforts in the first year of the Trump administration toward that end. New energy and infrastructure partnerships with Japan and India, the delivery of a Coast Guard cutter to Vietnam, strengthened cyber cooperation with partners such as Australia, Japan, Indonesia, New Zealand, Singapore, South Korea, and Vietnam. The first U.S.-India counterterrorism dia designations dialogue an effort to speed foreign military sales to our partners in the region. And we are very gratified to work with Congress on the Palau Compact. As the United States pursues our Indo-Pacific strategy, it's important to note that a number of our partners across the region are pursuing similar strategies. If you look at India's Act East policy, if you look at South Korea's new Southern policy, if you look at Japan's free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, if you look at Taiwan's new southbound policy, and if you look at Australia's foreign policy white paper, 
they are all seeking to expand ties across the region, across the Indo-Pacific, and in particular with the nations of Southeast Asia and ASEAN. As these strategies overlap with our own, they'll form a strong, free, and open fabric that will knit the region together, preserve sovereignty, and promote prosperity. This is a vision that the United States has long advanced in the Indo-Pacific, and one we believe will continue to reap benefits in terms of stability and prosperity. Mr. Chairman, members of the subcommittee, the Department of State, together with the rest of the administration, is making significant progress toward a lasting strategy that will ensure the Indo-Pacific continues to be a peaceful, prosperous, and economically dynamic region. I commend Congress, and this subcommittee in particular, for your thoughtful and thorough approach to supporting U.S. engagement in the region. I look forward to your questions, and I look forward to working with you and your staff, staff members on our Indo-Pacific strategy. Thank you, Mr. Wong. Uh, our second witness today is the Honorable Randall Shriver, who serves as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asian and Pacific Security Affairs at the Department of Defense. Uh, prior to his confirmation, he was the CEO and President of the Project 2049 Institute, a nonprofit research organization dedicated to the study of security trend lines in Asia. Mr. Shriver has also previously served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Prior to his civilian service, he served as an active duty Navy intelligence officer, including a deployment in support of Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Uh, welcome, Mr. Shriver, and thank you for your service. Look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Markey. <clears throat> Very much appreciate the opportunity to appear before you today and talk about our Indo-Pacific strategy. Also appreciate being able to testify alongside my great colleague, Alex Wong, and appreciate his leadership in developing and implementing our Indo-Pacific strategy. Let me say at the outset, we're really grateful for your support for U.S. engagement and leadership in the Indo-Pacific and the fact that, as you noted, uh, both in your opening statements, that it's bipartisan support in the Congress. That's very important and empowering for us. So we really commend your leadership there. Uh, also pleased to note at the outset, uh, the area uh, legislation, there seems to be great alignment with our policies. And uh, as you develop the legislation, we look forward to supporting it in, in final form uh, if it, uh, it comports as we expect it will with our goals. Um, if I could just provide a few updates uh, to DOD's contribution to the Indo-Pacific strategy. Secretary Mattis often notes that the Indo-Pacific is a priority theater. That's uh, certainly reflected in our national defense strategy and in our engagement with the region. In our national defense strategy, we clearly point out uh, that uh, of significant interest to us is the reemergence of great power competition, and that's uh, uh, being uh, promoted by the emergence and rise of China, as you both talked about in your opening remarks. Uh, so that demands a prioritization, and it also involves uh, strategic choices. So we must maintain a focus on that long-term challenge, but also, of course, deal with the immediate uh, threats and challenges posed by rogue regimes such as North Korea, as well as violent extremist organizations, uh, and, and would very much note uh, the incidents in uh, Indonesia this week. <clears throat> so we've crafted a defense strategy that builds a more lethal, resilient, ready, and rapidly innovating military. And when combined with our partners and allies, we believe we can sustain the ability to ensure a free, open, rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific. Strong deterrence is the foundation of our regional and indeed our global approach. And at DOD, our duty is to support our colleagues at the Department of State and our diplomats, such as Mr. Wong, as they uh, 
engage and do their work uh, to ensure they're doing so from a position of strength. DOD, therefore, is focusing investment on our combat capacity, our readiness, posture and presence, and other areas that are unique to the region's warfighting needs. These include investments in key capabilities to support joint integrated fires designed to defend U.S. interests and reach inside uh, potential adversaries' A2AD envelope. A central theme to our national defense strategy is also DOD's approach uh, to strengthening our alliances and partnerships, and in this we're very closely aligned with your work on area. We're, committing to, we're committed to working with by and through allies and partners to find ways to address these common challenges in the Indo-Pacific. We seek to build networks of capable and like-minded partners, and we're strengthening our abilities to deter potential adversaries while also using programs like the Maritime Security Initiative to improve partners' maritime domain awareness and maritime capabilities. We seek to enable them to better resist coercion and maintain their autonomy and independence so that they can contribute to a rules-based order and to, to deter and defend against threats. Our alliances and partnerships are force multipliers for good. All countries in the region benefit from this order and we expect allies and partners to contribute to its maintenance. Finally, our approach to the region and our strategy to maintain a free and open Indo-Pacific accounts for our relationship with China. We're certainly concerned by China's strategic intentions and their trajectory and uh, certainly concerned about some of the destabilizing behavior we're witnessing, for example, in the South China Sea. We'll pursue a constructive, results-oriented relationship with China, though we will not accept policies or actions that undermine the rules-based order. We'll stand up for and defend that order, and we'll encourage others to do the same. We'll cooperate with China where interests do align, but we will compete vigorously where our interests diverge. Our aim is for all nations to live in prosperity, security, and liberty, free from coercion, and able to choose their own path. The United States is a Pacific nation and has been one for centuries. We remain committed to maintaining the security and stability in this all-important region. Thank you again, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Markey, and look forward to your questions. Thank you, uh, Mr. Shriver. Thanks, uh, Mr. Wong, again for your testimony. And we'll begin with the, the question uh, portion of this hearing. I think the, the hearing title, of course, testimony to receive testimony on American leadership in the Asia-Pacific. Uh, what's exciting, I think, right now in the United States Senate, the number of people who are now engaged in Asia policies that uh, are relatively new to the Senate. Um, Senator Markey's participation in his uh, first term uh, in Asia as ranking member of the Foreign Relations Committee. Um, Senator Sullivan, Senator Dane, Senator Perdue, um, Senator Schatz, all relatively new members of the Senate to uh, provide leadership in Asia. One of the striking conversations I have with uh, policy leaders around uh, the region uh, is their fond recollection of interactions uh, with Congress uh, led by Senator Dole, Senator Inouye. Senator Stevens. That is a generation that obviously is no longer with us in the Senate. And so this new generation of leadership, I think, a new generation of leaders um, need to step up to the plate to provide that new generation of leadership for Asia. And I think that's what ARIA tries to get the very heart of, is an attempt to provide uh, new leadership in a region that desires uh, uh, a continuation of a rules-based system that has benefited uh, every nation who's wished to participate, and even those nations who wish now to change the rules. Um, so uh, a, a question for both of you. Uh, in the bill, ARIA, it sets the following, following policy goals. 
It is the policy of the United States to develop and to commit to a long-term strategic vision and a comprehensive, multifaceted, and principled United States policy for the Indo-Pacific region that, one, preserves peace through strength by securing the vital national security interests of the United States. Two, promotes American prosperity by advancing the economic interests of the United States. Three, advances American influence by reflecting the values of the American people and universal human rights. And four, accords with and supports the rule of law and international norms. Um, could you talk a little bit about whether you agree with these policy goals? Will the administration's Indo-Pacific strategy reflect these same goals and perhaps the strategy uh, to embrace those four goals? Thank you for your question, Senator. I'll say the administration does agree with those goals because they reflect not just the right goals and the right objectives in our strategy, but the long-standing interest and enduring interest the United States has in the Indo-Pacific. Mm -hmm. Along all of those lines, in our implementation formulation, uh, our, I'm sorry, our formulation of our implementation plan for the strategy, we're discussing all of our efforts on security, on governance, on fundamental rights, uh, as well as on diplomatic initiatives and economic initiatives. So I would agree with the, the policy laid out there in, in the ARIA legislation. Thank you, Senator. I uh, also would endorse those goals at the De Department of Defense. We're in the process of implementing our national defense strategy, which is a very forward-looking strategy and uh, has uh, long-term challenges very much in mind, which is why we talked about the emergence of great power competition and the challenges posed by China. Uh, and with the help of Congress and the funding provided, we're trying to build a, a force that's appropriate for that, the longer-term challenges dealing with uh, China in their military modernization program, and trying to work with partners and allies also to be adequately equipped and prepared for those long-term challenges. So we very much endorse your long-term view in this legislation. Thank you. Um, Dr. Graham Allison, the Douglas Dillon Professor at uh, Harvard uh, Kennedy School of Government, testified at one of our hearings last November, uh, and I quote, as realistic students of history, Chinese leaders recognize that the role, of the, the role the U.S. has played since World War II as the architect and underwriter of regional stability and security has been essential to the rise of Asia, including China itself. But they believe that as the tide that brought the U.S. to Asia recedes, America must leave with it. Much as Britain's role in the Western Hemisphere faded at the beginning of the 20th century, so must America's role in Asia as the region's historic superpower resume its place. This is uh, Graham Allison's testimony. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, this statement, whether you agree with it, disagree with it, how we uh, address this challenge of China, whether it's the, st the strategies we've talked about here or others that we need to uh, in include in the legislation, and what specific tools the United States could uh, utilize to offset uh, military and economic coercion, uh, predatory economics, uh, as uh, you stated in your testimony. Either one of you. I, I didn't see the full testimony of, of Dr. Allison. Uh, I assume he is describing the, the viewpoint perhaps of some Chinese scholars or strategists that he's aware of. I would disagree with that description uh, in the sense that the United States is not ebbing and flowing from the region. We are not uh, a nation that comes and goes from the Indo-Pacific. We have long been an Indo-Pacific nation we are an Indo-Pacific nation, and we will continue to be an Indo-Pacific nation. And this policy survives from administration to administration and does not come and go. I think that's borne out uh, by the President's pronouncement of the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy and the commitment he exhibited in his historic trip last year, capping his first year with such a trip. I think it's exhibited in the discussions Congress is having on the ARIA legislation that the legislative branch and the executive branch 
are focused on the Indo-Pacific, talking about a long-term strategy and our long-term commitment to the region is a very strong message to our partners in the region about our staying power and the fact that we've never left and we will not leave. Thank you. Mr. Schreiber. I agree with that, and meaning I disagree with uh, Dr. Allison's <laughs> assessment, my former professor. Um, <clears throat> but I think uh, we're committed to developing and implementing a defense strategy that will be suited for the long-term challenges that China pose, poses so we can ensure a free and open Indo-Pacific uh, remains. Uh, beyond that, I think working with partners and allies uh, who share not just affinity with the United States, but share values and interests. And so countries aren't necessarily choosing between the United States and China. They're choosing to embrace a rules-based order, embrace freedom of navigation, free flow of commerce, uh, protection of sovereignty, etc. So when you uh, ally and partner with countries who share those values, I think we're in a very good standing when you talk about Japan, South Korea, India, Australia, New Zealand, and uh, many other countries that will sign up for those values. That puts us in very good standing. Very good. Senator Markey. Thank you, uh, and thank both of you for your uh, service. Um, over the weekend, President Trump um, said in, in a tweet that the Commerce Department should find a way to give Chinese telecom company ZTE, quote, a way to get back into business fast. Uh, and that is despite the serious security concerns voiced publicly by U.S. officials about ZTE, as well as its violation of American sanctions and widespread bribery committed by the company to expand its footprint. Mr. Wong, do you believe that China, as the largest shareholder of ZTE, has a responsibility to operate in good faith within the laws and norms of the international system, including uh, by stringently enforcing sanctions? Thank you, Senator. A major component of our Indo-Pacific strategy is to um, bolster the rule of law, both in the nations of the Indo-Pacific as well as internationally. So we support uh, all nations of the Indo-Pacific, China included, abiding by controlling international law and international norms and the obligations to which they've signed up for on trade and on security uh, and on particularly maritime law. Now, with regard to the, the, the tweet you mentioned in ZTE, I understand the President issued guidance over the weekend on the sanctions related to ZTE. I understand that the Commerce Department is now reviewing that guidance and implementing the President's guidance in accordance with applicable <coughs> laws and regulations and the facts, and the particular facts of the ZTE case. I respectfully defer to the Commerce Department on the particular implementation of, of, of that guidance. Okay, so, so from your perspective, uh, you're not in a position to be able to give testimony with regard to the concessions from your perspective, your agency's perspective, that the United States abandoned in its insistence on adherence to the rules-based international system. Senator, the uh, main component, a foundational component of the Indo-Pacific strategy is to bolster the free and open order and the rules-based system. Uh, but with regard to the ZTE case, I do defer to the Commerce Department on the implementation of, of the President's guidance and on the sanctions on ZTE. Okay. Uh, in, inside of uh, the legislation, we address a broad range of U.S. foreign policy um, uh, toolkit items. 
from diplomacy to economic pressure to trade and development. General Dunford, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said, quote, there's no challenge that I'm currently dealing with that the primary factors in our success won't be diplomatic or economic. Um, do you agree with that, Mr. Shriver? I do, and as I, as I said, um, we very much view our role as supporting our diplomats and giving them the ability to operate from a position of strength, and that's true whether it's North Korea, uh, con contributing to the maximum pressure campaign so our diplomats can work a solution there, uh, but also challenges associated with China and, and other challenges in the region. Okay, great. The, the administration's fiscal year 19 budget request proposed cutting the State Department by approximately 30% with Asia-related cuts of about 50%. Uh, Mr. Wong, what kind of signal does it send to our allies and partners if we say that the Indo-Pacific is important but the President recommends significant funding cuts. Senator, I, we believe the FY19 budget uh, allows us to implement and achieve the objectives that we are seeking to achieve under the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. And I think uh, the core of your question is whether we are able to implement this strategy, implement our policies, and reassure our allies with the resources that we have and if you look at the first year of the Trump administration, we've had a number of achievements, a number of, first of all, trips to the region by cabinet members, by the vice president, and capping the year with a historic trip by the president himself. We've improved, greatly improved relations with Vietnam, and we've greatly made progress on the maximum pressure campaign with North Korea. Now, I would note that the FY19 budget uh, uh, requests, uh, I believe, on the order of uh, nearly uh, three-quarters of a billion dollars for our East Asia diplomatic uh, operations, uh, as well as our foreign assistance. That is a 10% increase over our FY18 request, and we had targeted increases in our request on certain areas to provide us seed money to implement the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, namely monies to bolster international institutions such as ASEAN, APEC, and our Lower Mekong Initiative, which is key to strengthening the rules-based order. We've asked for increases in our foreign military financing to bolster the military capabilities and partnerships we have with our partners in the region. We've also requested increases in our regional governance fund. This will allow us to implement the types of governments, governance capacity building we'd like to seek across the region to improve the abilities of uh, the, the nations of the region, as well as the provincial governments of the region, to adopt the types of procurement systems, bid systems, life cycle cost evaluation systems, and civil society Great. programs that will improve the free and open order. Thank you. Um, my hope is that the recommendation for next year's budget kind of reflects that in terms of the goals <laughs> which the administration has. And uh, just to move on to uh, North Korea for a second. Um, uh, Mr. Moore, how are, how are you uh, working to ensure that the United States doesn't fall for false concessions, those actions that do not substantively reduce the nuclear threat to the United States in its bid to eliminate North Korea's uh, nuclear and other destabilizing weapons? Thank you, Senator. We've, uh, as you know, we've gotten to this point where we have the conditions for these talks by applying over the past year a strong maximum pressure campaign on the DPRK together with our allies and together through uh, UN uh, Security Council resolutions. And the President and the Secretary have, have stated that we're walking into these uh, negotiations with clear eyes. 
fully understanding the track record of, of past efforts to d discuss the nuclear program with North Korea, fully understanding the, the track record of the North Koreans themselves. And they are very focused, our negotiating team is very focused on our ultimate goal, which is complete, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Okay, great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Rubin. Thank you both for being here. Uh, let me start. Uh, so I, hear, I have a document in my hand. This is from, this is an unclassified document from the National Intelligence Council, basically the office, the director of national intelligence. Let me read you the first paragraph of the unclassified. It says, China's government-run talent recruitment program facilitate the legal and the illicit transfer of U.S. technology, intellectual property, and know-how to further China's science and technology development, military modernization, and goal of becoming a science and technology superpower by 2049. It's overseen by the Communist Party Central Committee, and it, uh, it recruits scientists, engineers, entrepreneurs, and managers of all nationalities working or educated in the United States to commercialize and weaponize technologies. You both will agree that China is, under, is undertaking an effort to dominate the most important industries and technologies of the 21st century and that they do so not simply by out-innovating us or out-investing us, but primarily by the uh, either compelled or stolen transfer of intellectual property, uh, the use of the recruitment of both U.S. and other individuals in academia and in studying in the United States to transfer technology. They are basically conducting an all-out assault to steal what we've already developed and use it as the baseline for their development so they can supplant us as the leader in the most important technologies of the 21st century. Is that not an accurate statement? Senator, I believe what you've laid out is accurate. Um, and a number of those activities and policies perhaps fall under the chi Made in China 2025 plan that I believe uh, members of the committee or subcommittee are, are aware of. And while the, the, the full elements of that public policy, uh, as well as I, I'm assuming the, the private policies of China are still under review and we're still looking at it, I think we can look at the track record of what China has done when they've done mass subsidization of certain commodity in industries like steel and like aluminum, and the ill effects that that has had on world markets, number one, but also on the national security of other nations, the United States included. And the Trump administration has taken strong action on those fronts. Now that we're looking at industries or high-tech industries that China itself deems strategic, for instance, semiconductors, artificial intelligence, this raises similar and perhaps uh, more concerning uh, uh, issues with regard to the, the, the effects, the ill effects it'll have on world markets, on world economies, uh, but also the national security implications that you lay out. And this really goes to the broader competition that uh, we've laid out in our national security strategy between the closed economic and political system, international system that China uh, has, has, is advocating and the free and open, the more free and open uh, Indo-Pacific and world order that we've supported for over 70 years. And, and so, and I, and I want to run out of time and I, I support the open system. I think that's very important. But at the core, the most immediate and urgent threat here is the historic, unprecedented theft and transfer of intellectual property in the hundreds of billions a year unforeseen in the past, and that has direct national security implications for it is accurate, Mr. Uh, uh, Scriber, that technological high ground almost always translates to national security and the ability of a nation to defend itself and its interests, correct? Uh, yes, sir, and I, I think this is an area where we're 
paying attention, but we've got to improve because of the aggressive nature of the Chinese efforts that you mentioned. And it, and it has to be whole of government. We have to look at visas for university students. We have to look at uh, defense supply chain. Um, we have to look at all these things because of the aggressive nature of the, of the but, Chinese. And I guess the, the point I'm trying to drive is when we talk about issues like ZTE, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And apart from having helped to violate sanctions, the issue with them is not really so much a trade issue per se as it is a mechanism by which they, it is a technology, an infrastructure that they can use not simply to establish high ground there and market share in the U.S. at the expense of our domestic providers, but also as a way to steal intellectual property and secrets of other commercial uh, endeavors that they also view to be critical. And that's why that issue is so important. And I hope the administration does not move forward on this uh, supposed deal I keep reading about. Two topics I want to touch on and rapidly because it also has to do with part of this effort. That in, apart from the technology side, let me give you some things that have happened very recently. United American Airlines are being threatened by China that if their website doesn't say Taiwan, China, they're going to lose their routes and have fines and penalties. Marriott fired an American worker based in the United States of America because he accidentally liked a tweet on Tibet. Yesterday, the Gap, we've all been to the Gap, they printed a t-shirt with the map of China, but it didn't include Taiwan, and of course, the Gap quickly scattered, scrambled out, apologized, they issued a statement respecting China's sovereignty and territorial integrity. American companies are being bullied to the point where an American was fired in the United States because he liked the tweet, what is the State Department doing when companies come to them and say, we are being harassed in this way? Because these companies have all caved. Thank you for the question, Senator. The State Department believes these actions are outrageous and disturbing. I think we're all familiar with the sharp power that Beijing wields uh, its market access as a cudgel to uh, uh, reap certain economic concessions from private sector entities like intellectual property transfer or, or certain joint ventures with, with uh, Chinese companies. What they're doing now is extending this market access tactic to free speech, to uh, extend, as the White House called it, the Chinese view of political correctness to private sector actors, and in particular, U.S. companies. And we find that outrageous. As you've seen, the White House and the State Department have raised this publicly, condemned it publicly. We've raised it privately with our Chinese counterparts, and we've discussed this with the companies at issue. China is very much well aware that it's wading into treacherous waters here, and they understand that if they continue along this path, continue to employ these tactics, that it will negatively affect the U.S.-China relationship and that there will be consequences. I'm not so sure they think they're in treacherous waters because they keep winning. All these companies keep doing what they want because in the end, having market share is more important to these companies, uh, apparently, than, than you know, the trends that these are setting. I have one more quick question because one of the things China's trying to do as well is influence votes in international forums and have leverage even our own hemisphere. So just in the last year, we've had not one, but two countries in this hemisphere. First, Panama, after a lot of investment in Panama, and now the Dominican Republic, two weeks ago, after who knows what happened, both switch away from Taiwan's recognition and towards recognition of China. Um, and now I'm hearing that perhaps Paraguay might be next. 
and they're going to continue to work on this. And of course, when they invest all this money in these countries and frankly, oftentimes bribe individuals and government, things that our companies can't do, but their companies can, when they do these things, it's often as leverage to align those countries' foreign policy to what China's foreign policy may be. And the first step is to get them to break away from Taiwan, no longer recognize Taiwan, and align themselves and recognize China. What is the State Department doing? I know that's in a different bureau, but it has to be, it's part of China's global ambition and work. What are we doing? Are we telling countries around the region that we don't want to see them continue to do this? Have we talked to Honduras and Guatemala and Paraguay and other countries in the region, many of whom receive significant aid from the United States? Do they hear from us that we care about this issue? Senator, thank you for your question. Um, attempts to close off the international space of Taiwan and to alter the status quo across the street uh, are disturbing to, to the United States. And uh, in our U.S. One China policy, we seek to strengthen ties with Taiwan. We seek to provide them uh, proper defensive capabilities to defend their democracy. But we also want to maintain the status quo because it's the key to stability across the street. So any moves to strip Taiwan of its uh, diplomatic partners disturbs that status quo. And it's something that we make clear to our partners and we make clear uh, to, to, to Beijing as well. So we made it clear to the Dominican Republic that they shouldn't do what they did? That is my understanding. And they did it anyway. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Rubio. And I think um, I want to follow along the same lines here as well. Uh, when, when we let people know uh, our support for Taiwan, when we let people know that we are disturbed that they may follow um, China's um, uh, desires that we state uh, on our websites for American Airlines or uh, that we don't recognize Hong Kong uh, on a Marriott website as Hong Kong, but it's Hong Kong, China. Uh, when we let them know this, uh, are we working with other nations around the globe to put pressure on China to stop? I mean, could you talk a little bit about how we are pushing back? Is it just calling them up on the phone or in a meeting and saying, hey, we don't like this? I mean, what are we actually doing uh, to, to put some, some force behind uh, our disapproval? Senator, as I, um, uh, in my exchange with Senator Rubio, we've made this clear, uh, we've raised this privately with our, our Chinese counterparts. We've condemned it publicly. The White House has condemned it very strongly publicly. And we've talked with the companies who have uh, been involved in, in these incidents. Um, China understands where we stand on these activities and that if they continue along this path, they continue to employ these tactics to spread their vision of political correctness to U.S. companies as well as other companies around the world, that there will be consequences. What, what will those consequences be? No, those consequences are, are still under review, sir. And a lot of it will depend on China's actions going forward and if they continue along with these tactics. I mean, could those consequences be uh, reciprocal in terms of not allowing flights uh, from China to the United States or other destinations? Again, Senator, the, the, the consequences are under review. Uh, I don't want to get into to hypotheticals based on what China may or may not do going forward. The key for us, though, is for China to understand that this conduct is something we find outrageous and it's something that they should cease. Uh, for further details, however, I do defer to our, our China-specific team and I'm happy to, to work with you and talk with you and your staff about it. I understand, Mr. Wong. And it, it, I think uh, we have a, a World Health Association meeting uh, coming up toward the end of May. Uh, last year, of course, China was able to sideline 
uh, Taiwan from participation in this. I believe it's important that Taiwan participate in as many international organizations as we can, and we should continue to push and pursue the opening of those organizations to Taiwan. Uh, again, this may not be the, 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 the right uh, question for you, but could you talk a little bit about efforts that we should be undertaking to make sure that Taiwan is participating uh, in these organizations, international organizations? Thank you, Senator. The, the United States supports uh, Taiwan's appropriate participation in interna international fora, and they have a lot to offer, particularly in areas of humanitarian assistance, and in areas of health, and in areas of uh, economic cooperation. Uh, with respect to the WHA, the World Health Assembly. Assembly, excuse me, I said association, thank you. Uh, sorry, excuse me. Uh, we, we have been working to ensure, or help to ensure as much as possible that Taiwan's participation and that Taiwan is invited and participates on an appropriate level. Uh, we are disappointed to see that they were, were not invited this year, uh, but uh, we have worked, uh, we will continue to work to ensure that our partners and the WHA and the WHO understand where we stand as far as Taiwan being closed off from international fora, which again, is not just to the detriment of Taiwan, to the detriment of the United States, it's to the detriment of all partners around the world and all peoples that can benefit from the contributions of Taiwan. And I think as you've described, both of you have described the Indo-Pacific region, what, what we mean by free and open, as you've described the Indo-Pacific region. That free and open means sort of an Asia of independent states. Uh, that they are not tributary to other parts of Asia, but that it is an Asia of independent states. Is that an accurate assessment? Just, I'm it, assume, it, I, I assume that's an accurate assessment. It is. Um, the, there's also some thought uh, out there that uh, people believe the United States has been too defensive in Asia, that we continue to be on the defensive instead of the offensive when it comes to our Asia policy or our values and rules uh, that we support in Asia. Um, there's some who believe that we need a stronger public diplomacy information campaign directed at China to point out uh, problems that we have and perceive with their policies, like their approach to Taiwan or Hong Kong. Um, are we doing enough to highlight not only to the region but to our allies around the globe our disagreements with China's uh, attempts to uh, perhaps weaken that idea of an Asia of independent states? Senator, uh, you point out the fact and the truth that public diplomacy is key to our overall diplomacy and our overall strategy in the Indo-Pacific. And we do a, a lot on that front to promote the free and open order, to promote the free and open vision that has brought stability and prosperity to the region over the past 70 years. And when you, specifically when you talk about exchange programs, a huge part of our public diplomacy efforts, what we're doing there is developing the natural allies among the people of the Indo-Pacific to expose them to American ideas, to expose them to free and open ideas that are truly universal and beneficial. And for the long term, as they uh, uh, work in their societies and perhaps rise up to leadership positions, it'll strengthen that fabric, strengthen that sh those shared values and visions and principles that we talk about when we talk about the free and open order. Mr. Shriver. Uh, I certainly agree with Mr. Wong that uh, public diplomacy is key here. On the, on the defense side, uh, I think we're doing a lot to um, counter that narrative you described, Senator, 
Uh, we've increased the freedom of navigation operations just in terms of the numbers and, and the frequency of challenges. We're involved in capacity building efforts so that countries can protect their sovereign territory out to 12 nautical miles and so they can see out through their EEZ to 200 nautical miles. We're working not only with our traditional bilateral alliances, but we're building out uh, trilateral and minilateral efforts and quadrilateral efforts so that uh, if, if the Chinese are, are uh, observing, they'll note that it's not just a United States-China uh, competition, it's also a competition of ideas and values and interests. And so there are, I think, many more countries, including uh, the most significant and, and influential countries in Asia, outside of China, uh, support these concepts, and, and that'll be demonstrated and sustained over time. Thank you. Mr. Wong, to Senator Markey's question, you talked about some of the programs uh, that are being supported by State Department as we look at uh, our Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, what, talk a little bit about your, your belief uh, foreign military financing, international military education training, and how that fits into uh, this strategy. When we talk about the Indo-Pacific strategy, you can look at it as having three main buckets. First is an economic agenda, an affirmative economic agenda. Second is a governance and uh, capacity building effort to, to support good governance. But third is the security relationships. And the good thing about our security partnerships and our allied partnerships is that we have perhaps the, uh, a, a unique in history set of relationships in the region. Five treaty allies and numerous other partnerships where we expand the capacity uh, militarily of our partners, have mill-to-mill -mill, uh, relations, uh, and improve uh, interoperability and a common vision for what security and stability is in the Indo-Pacific. Now, I, I mentioned to Senator Markey that we've requested uh, increased money uh, for FMF financing FY19. And again, this goes toward the element of the strategy where we're trying to build the capacity of our partners, uh, improve cooperation, uh, and improve uh, that strong partnership we have, not just with our allies, but other security partners in the region. Thank you. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Mr. Shriver, uh, <clears throat> how do you view the importance of uh, U.S. forces in uh, Northeast Asia, specifically in the Korean Peninsula? Would you say that they are instrumental in keeping peace in the region? I think, as, as Secretary Mattis said last week, they're a stabilizing force. They're certainly uh, necessary at this juncture, given the threat posed by North Korea. We'll see what happens in the diplomatic track, but certainly now they're absolutely necessary. And I think uh, beyond what may happen in the diplomatic track, we have long-term strategic interests in Northeast Asia that I think, given our, our situation as a distant power, uh, we'll want forward deployed forces uh, as far out as these eyes can see. Um, China has constructed in clear violation of international law military bases on artificial islands in disputed areas in the South China Sea. What is the administration's strategy in the South China Sea? How are you ensuring that Beijing knows that we are heavily invested in seeing that the region remains free, open, and secure? Thank you, Senator. The, the militarization, the reclamation projects we've seen in the South China Sea from China are worrying to the United States and concerning. First of all, they violate certain commitments that, that China has made regarding uh, commitments not to militarize certain features. But further, the uh, militarization of the islands raises the prospect that China will press its claims in the South China Sea, not in accordance with international law, but by the principle of might makes right um, and, and pressure and coercion on the other claimants of the South China Sea. That's not in line with U.S. policy. 
we want all the claimants uh, to, to the features and to the waters of the South China Sea to resolve their disputes peacefully and importantly in accordance with international law. And toward that end, we take a, we take a number of efforts. First, and, and Randy can speak to this perhaps more in detail, we have a freedom of navigation operation program as well as general presence operations. Now, you, as, uh, you know, uh, you understand, Senator, that our FONOPS program is a 40-year-old program that operates worldwide, but it is uh, uh, very important in the South China Sea uh, that we continue these operations to uh, contest excessive claims and put force behind our vision uh, of, of maritime international law, which truly is the oldest international law. Number two, we conduct legal diplomacy throughout the region to ensure that our partners throughout the region understand the dictates of international law uh, 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 along the sea routes of the Indo-Pacific, but in particular in the South China Sea. Uh, third, we uh, provide maritime security assistance to our, our partners. This uh, has a nu numerous benefits, but one ancillary benefit is that it pr provides them confidence, the courage of their convictions on what uh, their view is on international law. And fourth, we work to encourage ASEAN in their negotiations of a code of conduct in the South China Sea to ensure that that code of conduct is meaningful and defends international law and is uh, grounded in what international law dictates. Uh, thank you. Mr. Schreiber, um, just following up on uh, Senator Rubio, China's investments in sensitive industries are proliferating with Chinese acquisitions of U.S. companies reaching a record $65 billion in 2016, a six-fold increase over the previous year. <clears throat> Mr. Schreiber, how do you see this issue? Are we appropriately positioned to ensure that U.S. security interests are protected from foreign acquisition? I think given the, the nature of the uh, Chinese efforts and how aggressive they are, uh, we can do better. We're looking at uh, the de defense supply chain. We're looking at uh, the private sector and, and uh, uh, certain technology companies that contribute to the defense sector. And uh, I think in many ways, uh, trying to partner with Congress to uh, shore up, for example, uh, the CFIUS the uh, system now. We're, um, uh, I think, engaged in, an, in a number of ways to consult with private companies to uh, protect their intellectual property, protect their technology. Uh, so this is another sort of whole-of-government effort that's needed, but Defense Department is contributing by identifying sort of these key uh, areas we need to protect and these key parts of our defense supply chain that need protection. But it's absolutely uh, an aggressive effort on the part of the Chinese that we need to pay attention to and counter. Thank you. Um, and next I'd like to ask you about the administration's record in condemning Philippine President Duterte's brutal campaign of extrajudicial murders that has resulted in the deaths of at least 8,000 Filipino drug users and low-level drug dealers. I was pleased to read in the 2017 Country Reports on Human Rights Practices that the State Department wrote of the Philippines' extrajudicial killings have been the chief human rights concern in the country for many years. The President has refused to criticize the Duterte government's use of extrajudicial killings and on the sidelines of the November 2017 Association of Southeast Asian Nations summit meeting in Manila, rather than denouncing the brutal campaign, the president has said that he has, quote, a great relationship with President Duterte and said that he has always been a friend of the Duterte administration. 
Uh, Mr. Wong, do you believe the administration has done enough to prioritize the promotion and protection of human rights in the Philippines? Senator, uh, if you look at the Philippines, it's a long-standing democratic ally, as you, you understand. And we have very strong, broad, and deep people-to-people -people ties with the Philippines. We have very strong military cooperation with the Philippines. And in particular, we have strong cooperation on counterterrorism with the Philippines, which is a rising threat in the region. Now, we've also, with all that said, we have concerns over the drug war that uh, the Philippines is, is prosecuting in their nation. And we have repeatedly expressed those concerns to the Filipino government. And as you know, the law, the U.S. law, prohibits assistance, uh, foreign assistance, going to individuals or units involved in gross human rights violations. And that law applies to the Philippines as well. That said, the rule of law assistance that we do provide to the Philippines encourages and it bolsters their ability to conduct the drug war in the right way, namely disrupting international trafficking, focusing on drug use prevention, treatment, and rehabilitation, and importantly, building the capacity of the justice sector to handle cases transparently, to handle them effectively, and to handle them in a way that respects fully international human rights. Um, no, I appreciate all that, but at the same time, I just think there should be more forceful condemnation of what is happening in the Philippines, how Duterte conducts himself. And I just think we send the wrong message to not just the Philippines, but to other countries uh, when uh, the kinds of statements that were made by President Trump uh, are uh, interpreted as those which are giving Duterte a pass in terms of his um, human rights abuses inside of the country. Um, may I go on, yes, Mr. Please. Chairman? Yeah, please, yeah. I'd like to move on to Burma, if I may. After visiting the refugee camps in Bangladesh, which are now home to more than 700,000 Rohingya refugees who fled Burma, representatives of the United Nations Security Council are now considering whether the UN Security Council uh, should refer Burma's brutal campaign to the International Criminal Court for accountability for human rights abuses, including the use of rape as a tool of war. Um, Mr. Wong, what steps has the State Department taken to push for a credible accountability process? Thank you, Senator. The situation in Rakhine State in, in Burma is, is dire, and it's greatly concerning to the State Department and to the United States. And our uh, response has been multifaceted. First and foremost, we provided humanitarian assistance to relieve the suffering by the Rohingya, by Bangladeshi host communities, and other internally displaced persons and asylum seekers. Since October 2016, we've provided uh, over a quarter of a billion dollars in hum humanitarian assistance, and I believe that assistance will continue uh, in order to ensure that the humanitarian suffering uh, is at least in part relieved. Secondly, we work with a number of like-minded countries and partners like the UN to urge Burmese authorities to address the Rakhine State uh, crisis, to end the violence, to restore the rule of law, to grant unhindered humanitarian access as well as media access uh, to, to Rakhine State, and to guarantee those that, who, who wish to voluntarily return that they can do so uh, in safety and do so with dignity. We're also urging cooperation on the part of the authorities uh, in Burma on a credible independent investigation 
on allegations of atrocities in northern Rakhine State <clears throat> to ensure that there is accountability. And lastly, we will, at a broad manner, a broad, as a broad matter, continue to support the democratic transition of Burma to ensure that the military develops professionally and develops uh, uh, modes of conduct uh, uh, subject to civilian control and that the military meets international standards of human rights and adopts uh, standards of accountability for what we are seeing occurring in Rakhine State. Yeah, Mr. Wong, I, I introduced an amendment to the Burma Human Rights Bill that would enhance accountability uh, mechanisms for sexual and gender-based violence and conflict. And although the State Department and Department of Defense can be forward-leaning and urge greater accountability uh, for these atrocities, um, uh, it just hasn't been enough from my perspective. Mr. Wong, will you commit to using all existing authorities to punish those who use sexual violence as a tool of law? Senator, uh, I thank you for your work and for, for Congress's focus on Burma over a number of years, not just recently, but in particular recently. And Congress has provided uh, the executive branch with a number of strong tools uh, to address the situation in Burma and to address sexual violence. And uh, we want to make sure that we can apply those tools in a tailored fashion and in a robust fashion. As far as new bills and new authorities, if there are new tools that you will be presenting, uh, I am sure that our Burma team will be happy to work with you, happy to review the tools to make sure that they do uh, go toward achieving our, our mutual goal of relieving the, the, the suffering uh, in Burma. Great. Thank you, Mr. Truman. Senator, Senator Kane, are you ready to ask questions? Or? Glad to. Okay, great. Senator Kane. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you to the witnesses. Um, Section 110 of uh, ARIA commits the U.S. to full implementation of sanctions against North Korea and supports the pressure campaign to achieve complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Can I ask you to describe what the United States understands by complete denuclearization? There's been just, you know, recent press around this has been suggesting that there may be different views between the U.S. and North Korea about what complete denuclearization means. Uh, talk to me about what that means to the United States pursuance to ARIA and administration policy. Senator, thank you for your question. Uh, as you're aware, over the past year, the administration has put immense resources and the State Department has put immense resources into our maximum pressure campaign to uh, impose to the maximum extent the sanctions powers that we do have. We've also worked with our, our like-minded partners uh, and partners across the world and at the UN to implement new sanctions and new pressure uh, to create the conditions now where we can discuss denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Now, I am uh, uh, not uh, uh, a part of the negotiating team, uh, but I do understand that our team is clear-eyed about the track record of North Korea, about the track record of prior negotiations and how they have failed to meet our ultimate objective. So they are focused on that ultimate objective, which is, as you know, complete, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. <coughs> Um, on further details, however, I uh, will respectfully have to defer to our negotiating team in the White House. Let me ask you this. The, we're here because of the good work of our uh, two leaders on the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act. And the, the idea of reassurance is a reassurance that the United States is going to continue to play a leadership role. Um, and, and this may be a hard question for you to answer, so I'll just, because I think this is for the negotiators probably as well. So I'll just make it as a comment and as a concern. I, I don't hesitate to criticize the administration on things. I think the North Korea 
challenge is a tough one, and except for not having an ambassador in South Korea, I haven't, which I think is, sends a very bad sign, I, I don't have a lot to fault the, this administration for about the North Korea thing. I think so far the opening of dialogue's been positive. I tell you a worry that I have, though. My worry is that the discussion will involve uh, strategies that may abate tension on the Korean Peninsula but that may not reassure our allies generally. They may be strategies that are very uh, favorable to China, for example, the, the things that the U.S. might do in exchange for reducing tensions on the Korean Peninsula might be a series of things that would be, in the grand scheme, very, very helpful to China, which would not reassure uh, many of our allies in the region who are concerned about Chinese influence. And so this is one of the things that I'm going to be watching as these uh, discussions and negotiations progress. Anything we can do to bring down nuclear tensions at Peninsula, I will, I will sort of have a default in favor of, and yet I think we do have to make sure we're not doing that at the expense of ceding uh, even greater hegemony to China in a region in a way that our allies would find disturbing. So that's just, you can comment if you want, but I know that that's big negotiation policy. Mr. Wong. Uh, uh Two points, Senator, and thank you for your question. Um, I, you're right that we have not yet appointed an ambassador to South Korea, but I do understand this is a priority for Secretary Pompeo. But I do have to say that uh, we have a charge there, Mark Knapper, who some of you may have met mm -hmm. on, on your travels to Seoul, who's been very effective and has been uh, uh, very strong getting us to this point uh, uh, prior to the, the, the upcoming summit. Secondly, uh, re with regard to the allies, a, a key part of our approach on DPRK is strong lockstep coordination with our allies in the region, namely, first of all, South Korea with respect to this issue, as well as Japan. And those discussions continue at all levels to rem uh, so that we do remain on the same page right. and we're taking every step together with our allies. Excellent. I want to move to uh, ask a couple of questions about Burma, if I can. Um, do you believe it's important to hold accountable individuals of any military or security force who are involved in human rights abuses? Senator, I do, and I think uh, our policy in Burma is to encourage accountability for any atrocities that have occurred. Do you believe that individuals who knowingly played a direct and significant role in committing human rights violations against the Rohingya, such as senior military and security officials in Burma, should be held accountable to the full extent of U.S. and international law? Uh, Senator, I, I believe that is our policy, to hold uh, accountable those who take part in human rights violations, and we've taken steps to encourage accountability. Do you both agree that, based on that answer, that this accountability should include those who were in charge of a unit involved in so-called clearance operations in the northern Rakhine state that began during or after October 2016? Senator, I'm not uh, aware of the particular operations you're referring to. I will have to defer to my, my, uh, the State Department's Burma team on that. And I understand my colleague, Patrick Murphy, who is our acting special representative on Burma, was here on Friday for a briefing, and he can continue to brief. But uh, for the overall policy of encouraging accountability, ensuring that gross human rights violations are, are punished and, 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 and prevented, that is our policy in Burma, as it is elsewhere around the world. I'm, I'm going to ask that question again for the record in writing, because it may be appropriate for others to weigh in on that question. Um, the accountability should also be extended to those who knew or should have known that the official subordinates were committing sexual or gender-based violence and failed to take adequate steps to prevent such violence or punish 
individuals responsible for such violence? Should accountability extend to them? Senator, I'm happy to take back the specific question on specific incidents right. to our team, uh, but I do want to emphasize that we fully support the goals that, that we share with you of ensuring accountability, ensuring that human rights are, uh, violations are punished. Have, has the Department of State and Defense had a chance to review the proposed uh, Burma Human Rights and Freedom Act? Uh, Senator, I'll have to defer to our legislative team and our, our Burma team. I, I, not aware if we've completed our review yet, okay. but overall, uh, if there are further tools on Burma or any other policy, the State Department stands ready to review and work with Congress to ensure those tools are robust and well-tailored to achieving our goals. I am going to ask for the record the following question. Do either of your agencies have policy objections to implementing the sanctions detailed in the Bipartisan Act? And I'll ask that for the record for a written response. The reason I ask that series of questions is, um, one thing that I found noticeable about the written testimony of each of you was um, no mention of Burma or the Rohingya. I'm a believer that we can't have stability in a region while there are ongoing atrocities happening without anybody being held uh, accountable. And Burma's democratic experiment and what seems for now to be a failed experiment is very, very disheartening. And so I'll ask those questions for the record and I would appreciate that. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Senator Kane. Uh, Mr. Shriver, Secretary Shriver, uh, Senator Markey mentioned and talked a little bit about the Philippines and our response uh, in the Philippines, uh, given some human rights violations there. Uh, Philippines also presents an opportunity from a, from a strategic standpoint uh, on the defense side of the picture. Could you talk a little bit about where we are with EDCA right now and uh, how that uh, should be perhaps utilized to a greater degree than it is, if it can be? And if it can't be, uh, what is, is it the Philippine government that's holding us back or is it our reservations? Sure. Uh, thank you, Senator. I think um, on the defense side, our relationship is uh, remains strong, as Mr. Wong indicated. Uh, there's a, a long-standing foundational relationship between many of the institutions between our two countries. I think particularly the recent campaign in Marawi uh, reinforced the importance of U.S.-Philippine cooperation in the CT area. On EDCA, um, we uh, are making progress, I would say, and there's a number of steps that need to be taken. Uh, side evaluations, for example, um, uh, perhaps could go uh, more quickly for our liking, but I, I would say that, that we are making progress. We'll keep, we'll keep pushing this with our uh, Filipino counterparts. It's your full intent, though, that, that the Philippines has no hesitation uh, on the agreement, the partnership? I don't believe there's a, a, a political hesitation or problem. I think it's uh, mostly just the pace at which bureaucracies can move and, and folks can, can move on this. Section 101 of ARIA authorizes funds for the following goal, uh, to bolster the United States military presence and readiness in the Indo-Pacific region for the purpose of deterring and defending against provo uh, prov provocative actions, including by improving the defense infrastructure, critical munitions stockpiles of the United States, and critical munitions stockpiles of the United States Armed Forces. Um, could you talk a little bit about that goal? Uh, what improvement the Department of Defense would like to see, Mr. Shriver, and uh, where you think we should have improvements and perhaps a, a state of, uh, just give us an update of the state of readiness in the armed forces within the Pacific, Indo-Pacific region? Thank you. I, I probably would want to give a more fulsome answer uh, by taking the question and giving a more detailed briefing on plans for dispersal and for how we would uh, plan to have ammunition storage, et cetera, and the, the number of things you mentioned in your question. I think as a, as a general matter, we understand the implementation of the national defense strategy and dealing with the challenges that China poses. 
will require a different approach, a different uh, perhaps posture, but also this ability for dispersal, this ability for survivable, sustainable logistics uh, to, to include ammunition uh, support for our four deployed forces. Um, I can give you a more fulsome answer by taking the question, but certainly as a general matter, these are our goals and we appreciate the, the uh, support as expressed in your, in your uh, efforts here at the committee. Great, thanks, perhaps we can follow up on that uh, question a little bit more. Uh, Mr. Wong, uh, talking a little bit about the, the competition and Chinese, uh, China's practices, uh, economic practices, economic coercion, predatory economics have uh, been characterized a number of ways. Uh, what is our strategy right now uh, as it relates to uh, the BRI initiative of China and how to counter that? Thank you, Senator. Um, the uh, One Belt, One Road initiative or the BR, the Belted Road initiative is essentially a state-financed, state-backed um, infrastructure initiative to build infrastructure across Central Asia and other parts of the Indo-Pacific. When we look at the Belt and Road initiative, the United States is is less concerned about where the money comes from or from which country the money comes from. We're much more concerned with, A, how the financing for the infrastructure is structured, number one, and number two, how the particular projects are conceived and implemented. So we're concerned with the financial, the debt structuring, because if these deals and these, this financing is not structured in a way that recipient nations across the Indo-Pacific can pay them back in a sustainable manner, what we'll see over time is that these projects will, will compromise the sovereignty of these nations to the detriment of their national security. And we're concerned about the particular projects. But yet those nations continue to take the dollars, the projects. Do they understand that? Well, Senator, we, uh, we have a number of efforts across the Indo-Pacific and really around the world to build the capacity of partner governments to understand life cycle costing, to understand what a proper bid process is up to international standards, and to understand how they can structure debt, drive a harder bargain to ensure that they preserve their sovereignty, preserve their economies over time as they partner with other nations or private sector actors on their infrastructure, whether that's China, whether that's Japan, whether that's us or, the, or private capital markets. But going back to uh, the, the particular projects, we want to ensure also that, that countries conceive of these projects in an, uh, focused in a way that, uh, on economic growth, that these projects are truly feasible economically, that they're connected to the economies of these nations, and that they're focused not on certain strategic designs, but on economic designs. Because if they're not conceived and implemented in that manner, what we'll see is that these projects won't lift up the nation's economies, but in fact weigh them down. So that's a message we're bringing to our partners and we're also putting our capacity building uh, efforts behind this effort, something we've done literally for decades. Uh, perhaps we should talk about it more, but we've facilitated, the United States has facilitated hundreds upon hundreds of connectivity projects around the Indo-Pacific to drive regional integration in a positive manner, to raise GDPs, to increase stability and the economic growth of these nations. We want to continue that trend and ensure that other initiatives don't diminish the, uh, the positive growth of the region. Secretary Shriver, um, you mentioned the CFIUS and CFIUS review processes. Uh, some have talked about perhaps maybe a more global approach uh, to a CFIUS uh, review system. Uh, other countries are having the same questions about national security and investments in their country uh, by, by SOE uh, type of uh, organizations or other government uh, interventions funded enterprises. Uh, 
have we looked at a, a global type of CFIUS uh, with partners like Australia, Japan, because we share common national security interests, and what would that look like if we did? Um, it's a great question, Senator. A little bit outside my lane in DOD channels, we do talk about um, the challenges that China poses, and particularly in the countries you mentioned, uh, to the extent we can share our experiences and, and um, uh, trade notes on, on Chinese behavior. We, we do that in DOD channels in terms of promoting an overall global CFIUS uh, I'd have to refer to other colleagues in, in government if that's been a conversation. Thank you. Mr. Wong, would you, do you want to address that at all? Uh, Senator, it's, it's a little bit outside my, my ken as well, uh, but I, I understand, I think that the administration is working together with Congress on certain bills and reviewing certain bills with regard to the CFIUS process to, to reform it and strengthen it. Thank you. Senator Markey. Uh, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I just have one final question. Um, during his confirmation process to head the Pacific Command, Admiral Philip Davidson submitted to the Senate Armed Services Committee that, quote, I believe the INF Treaty today unfairly puts the United States at a disadvantage and places our forces at risk because China is not a signatory. Admiral Harry Harris has made similar assertions. Mr. Schreiber, can you explain how DOD recommends uh, that the United States respond to this asserted disadvantage with the, uh, the noncompliance with the INF? Well, the, the discussion about the future of that treaty would belong to my colleagues at state. I would say from a DOD perspective, I, th I think it's about 85% of Chinese uh, missiles that would be INF non-compliant, really the backbone of their power projection are ballistic and cruise missiles that would be INF non-compliant. So unless something is done about that, either through uh, treaty efforts or, or through uh, other diplomatic efforts, uh, we have to accommodate for that uh, capability. People describe it as an anti-access area denial uh, strategy on the part of China. And so we account for that by uh, some of the uh, efforts I described earlier, greater dispersal opportunities, more access opportunities, uh, uh, longer range power projection ourselves, staying outside threat envelopes. But it's a very dynamic challenge, and it's one that if we're going to be able to implement our national defense strategy, compete effectively with China, we do have to account for that. Mr. Wong, what is the State Department's plan to uh, deal with this issue? What is the initiative that you're taking in order to close this uh, uh, problem off? Thank you, Senator. I'm aware of the, the testimony uh, from Admiral Davidson and Admiral Harry Harris, and I'm aware of the, uh, the uh, current uh, strictures and requirements of the INF Treaty, uh, both in, in Europe and Asia. With regard to uh, any modification of, of, of those treaties, I will have to take that question back to our international security team uh, at the State Department. Happy to provide you an answer. Yeah, but you, you know, just listening to Mr. Schreiber, it's clearly a, uh, a huge issue. I think the number you just used was 85% are not in compliance right, with the INF. If they, if they were to try to join or if they were to be, have, have those restrictions imposed on them, I believe that's about the right figure, yeah, yes. That's a big, big issue. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. In ARIA, we talk about human rights. You've talked about human rights in your testimony and answers today. We talked about the democratic values in the Indo-Pacific region uh, and uh, that that is indeed part of United States national interests and national security interests. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how ARIA, you believe, could help you uh, address the mission and the goal uh, of addressing human rights? Mr. Wong. S Senator, I am glad that 
that human rights is mentioned in ARIA, and I assure you that we uh, talk about this uh, constantly within our interagency process and at the State Department, not just with regard to the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, but of our uh, democratic, sorry, our diplomatic efforts uh, around the world. Um, you, as well as I, know that the U.S. has a strong tradition of advocating for human rights. This is for a number of reasons. Number one, it's uh, our comparative advantage when we talk about competition abroad. Number two, it has benefits in terms of stability and prosperity if human rights are respected in more parts of the world than they are today. But lastly, and this is perhaps most important, it's simply morally right. It is the right thing to do. It's a part of the U.S. creed and part of our founding. It is what has always been a part of our enduring interest and our ideals. Um, you know, I'm glad, again, that Aria highlights this and that we are continuing to focus on this at the State Department. You know, the United States is the world's strongest power, but we're also the world's most moral actor. Um, and we have a unique role in, in speaking for those who, who can't freely speak for themselves and advocating for their rights. Thank you, Mr. Wong. And Aria also talks about, in Section 202, the multilateral, bilateral, regional trade agreements that increase U.S. Uh, employment and expand our economy. Um, could you talk a little bit about your role, uh, excuse me, the State Department's um, support or, or uh, not, uh, they're, they're, whether they don't support it, the goal, that goal, in terms of trade agreements, multilateral, bilateral trade agreements, uh, and what would the State Department's role be in uh, negotiating such agreements? Engagements, I should say. Sure. Senator, as, as I mentioned in my opening statement, we have a very deep and broad economic relationship with the Indo-Pacific. Again, the number one trading partner for the Indo-Pacific, the number one foreign direct investor. So strengthening those economic relationships, strengthening the investment environments in the Indo-Pacific uh, is not only in the interest of uh, uh, the nations geographically in, in the Pacific, but also uh, is in our interests. And the Trump administration and President Trump is very focused on defending the interest in improving the lot of U.S. businesses and U.S. workers. Toward that end, in the Indo-Pacific, we have a, a number of actions. Uh, first, that we work for ambitious agendas in APEC so that we can work through APEC to collectively lower trade barriers and lower investment barriers to improve uh, economic prospects for the, all the nations in the Indo-Pacific, the U.S. included. Second, uh, the President supported bilateral trade agreements with any country that is open to free, fair, and reciprocal trade, and we're looking at that. And third, uh, we've talked a little bit about connectivity. We uh, want to engage more on this economic front because best value energy infrastructure, digital infrastructure, transport infrastructure in the Indo-Pacific can redound to our benefit by first uh, improving the economies in the Indo-Pacific and making them better trade partners, but also uh, particularly with energy, uh, the prospect for exports for U.S. businesses and U.S. workers uh, and lowering the, the trade deficits that we have with countries in the Indo-Pacific uh, holds a lot of uh, benefits uh, and, and good prospects in terms of benefits. And this is something that is, is talked about in ARIA. And, and do we need to restructure any of our sort of uh, trade investment organizations, our development uh, infrastructure, our investment infrastructure uh, for further engagement in Asia? Um, I understand that the administration has supported the goals of, uh, I believe it's called the BUILD Act, uh, which would uh, essentially consolidate most, not all, but most of our development finance uh, uh, agencies here in the United States under one roof so we can have uniform policy direction, uniform authorities, uh, perhaps increased capacities to, uh, uh, to foster the type of private sector investment we want to see 
in connectivity projects around the world, but also, and in particular for, for my purposes, in the Indo-Pacific. I think that would be very helpful because it, uh, again, provides uniform policy direction, but it gives the private sector, the U.S. private sector, as well as our partner governments at the national and provincial level, a one-stop shop, a place they know they can go to when they want to discuss best value practices for fostering connectivity. Thank you, Mr. Wong. Final question. You mentioned APAC. Where do you see ASEAN and our relationship with ASEAN fitting in the Indo-Pacific? Senator, the, the strategic logic of ASEAN is that small and medium-sized nations of Southeast Asia can band together and use their collective weight to resist outside coercion and foster a free and open order, a rules-based order. So we support that. We support the centrality of ASEAN. You know, when I, I, I was out in the region, I was in Jakarta, and I, I told our partners there, I had a meeting with the, the permanent representatives of ASEAN, and I said, if you were to devise uh, from scratch a, a body to promote a free and open order, you would band together the, the, the nations at the fulcrum of the region in Southeast Asia. You'd have this body be able to convene the nations in the Indo-Pacific. You'd have it work in a consensus manner so that its decisions were strong and, and respected. You would, in fact, create ASEAN. So the good thing is we don't have to create it. We have ASEAN already. So the corollary policy for the United States is to strengthen ASEAN is to work with them so that their decisions are meaningful and that they can tackle larger regional security issues and other issues that, that we need to support the type of rules-based free and open order that we want to promote. Mr. Markey, Senator Kane. Uh, thank you both uh, for your time and testimony today. And uh, Senator Kane, I believe uh, you may have had some questions for the record. The record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday. Uh, please have your questions submitted by then. I would ask the witnesses uh, to please respond as quickly as possible. Uh, and those responses will be made part of the record. And with the thanks of this committee, uh, the committee is now adjourned.